Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you, come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy, nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. I am Dr. Randy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hope you're having a great week. We're almost close to football season. Can you feel it in the air? Can you feel it? Can you feel it? It's almost upon us. I'm excited. I hope you're excited, too. And if you're not excited, it's almost chicken wings and chips and salsa season for you. Hopefully those are some plant-based wings that you're eating. I know those exist somewhere. Somewhere somebody's eating some plant-based chicken wings. All right, let's go on topic. This week I have on Dr. Shawnee Willard Clay. Dr. Willard Clay is a board-certified gastroenterologist from Maryland. She is a member of the American Gastroenterology Association, American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, American College of Gastroenterology, and the most important group she's a part of is Delta Sigma Theta Incorporated. Shout out to all my Delta friends. This week, Dr. Whittler Clay and I discussed colon cancer screening. Last season, I talked about colon cancer screening not too long after the passing of Chadwick Boseman. This season, I want to bring on a specialist to give you a more in-depth conversation on colon cancer screening, including when you should get one done, the different options available for colon cancer screenings. There are more options than just having a colonoscopy, so pay attention to that part in the episode and what is involved when you get a colonoscopy. It will be a great discussion. And while you're listening, be sure to click on the survey link in the show description and fill out the very short survey. I'm just trying to learn about you, the listener, and the survey takes literally less than a minute. Thank you to all of those who have filled it out so far. So let's go on call with Dr. Woodler Clay and discuss colon cancer screening. All right, so welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. We have Dr. Shawnee Willard Clay on today's episode. Thank you for joining me. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on here, Dr. Hines. Thank you so much for your invitation. You've had some heavy hitters on this show. I listened to a few of the a few of your episodes. So Dr. Brantley and my personal gynecologist, Dr. Taniqua Miller. You've had some some great folks, so I got some large shoes to fill, but hopefully, hopefully I'm able to do that this episode. I know you'll reach the bar. I know they kind of said it high, but I have one of Atlanta's best gastroenterologists with me today, so I know we'll be good on this episode. <laughs> thank you. And before we get started, I'd also like to thank you for doing this. You know, I know this is unpaid service that you're doing for the community and and from on behalf of the entire medical field we really do appreciate this it's so important that our patients and that the general population really just gets to gets this uh, important free knowledge about their health so thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to educate our world appreciate it you gonna make me shed a little third tear over here <laughs> i mean it deserves to be it deserves to be recognized <laughs> Right, right, right. They just want us to refill their medications and give them what they want. 
Exactly. It was a different level of care. So we appreciate it. I know patients and, and the listeners and your followers appreciate it as well. All right. So what made you uh, want to become a gastroenterologist? What like piqued your interest in this in this field? Sure. So I think I decided on gastroenterology. I started having an interest in it when I was in medical school. Um, probably around the second or third year of medical school, learning about the pathophysiology of the digestive tract and just how everything works with digestion. And um, I really was interested in, in various liver disorders and various pancreatic disorders. And um, when I entered residency, I made sure that during my intern year, I did a couple of GI rotations. And that's where it, where it, really, um, where it really hit me that that was what I was destined to do. Um, I think that I'm more so fascinated by the, just the, the, um, just how amazing the, the digestive tract is. I love the instant gratification that I get from coming in in the middle of the night and, and doing scopes or removing a food impaction or removing a, a foreign object from the body. So that really, really interests me. And so I, I really appreciate that about the field of GI. I do think that there's also um, a lot of flexibility. Um, I think it's a good work-life balance as a gastroenterologist. So those are multiple reasons that, that I decided to go into GI. There's a lot going on in the GI tract, from the mouth to the anus. <laughs> Something is going on mm-hmm. in there. So are there different kind of specialties within GI? Like is there a pediatric GI specialist? inflammatory bowel, what kind of different directions can you go in from GI? Mm -hmm. So if you want to do adult GI, you do internal medicine residency first, and then you would do a three-year GI fellowship. If you want to do PHGI and work with children, you would do a three-year pediatric residency, and then you would do a three-year pediatric GI fellowship. Within the sphere of adult GI, you can then go into transplant hepatology, where you become a transplant hepatologist and work with patients that have had liver transplants. Um, you can also go into advanced GI, where you do procedures like endoscopic ultrasounds and other advanced GI procedures, and you um, work a lot with the biliary tract and the pancreas. And that's um, an additional year of subspecialization. So how it breaks down is obviously you have your four years of medical school, you have your three years of residency, every three years of GI fellowship, and then you can do an additional year of transplant hepatology or an additional year of an advanced GI fellowship. Um, There are also inflammatory bowel disease fellowships, but those are one year, and people typically do that prior to entering general GI fellowship because you get so much IBD or inflammatory bowel disease exposure um, during fellowship. You don't necessarily need to do an additional year afterwards. So, man, that's a lot of different routes that you can take after you've already finished, like, your original fellowship. It is. It is. Um, the majority of GI doctors are ga- are general GI doctors, so like myself. So we kind of see the full gamut of things. And if there's something that's super specialized, then we'll send Lorefer to one of our colleagues um, at an academic uh, GI facility. Is there something that y'all deal with on a regular basis that some people are kind of surprised about? Like, for example, for me being a family medicine physician, sometimes people are surprised when I tell them that I deal with anxiety and depression. I'm like, yeah, I, I deal with that a lot, mm-hmm. people to come to see me. But is there anything that when you tell people like, yeah, I do this every day that they're, they're kind of in shock about? 
Um, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, we do a lot of anxiety, depression ourselves as well, um, especially with patients that have things like IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. A lot of times, anxiety, depression, other psychiatric disorders can overlap with IBS. And so oftentimes, a lot of medicines that I prescribe um, for IBS tend to also be psychiatric medications. Um, so things like antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications, I frequently prescribe um, with patients with IBS symptoms just because of that, you know, that gut-brain interaction is real. And when we perceive stress in our brain and in our environment, oftentimes it physically can manifest in the gut. And so, um, so yeah, that's something I see on a daily basis, the effects of anxiety and depression on one's digestive tract. Okay. So I definitely want to have you back one day so we can talk more about IBS issues. But today I wanted to have you on so we can talk about colon cancer screening. So what I always like to do is set off for each episode, having a good foundation for people to know um, certain things. So let's just talk about the digestive tract in general. Can you break down some of the different areas of the digestive system and what they do specifically? Sure. So as we all know, food enters um, our body through our mouths. It goes down our esophagus, which is a tube that connects our mouth to our stomach. And so the esophagus works by um, literally allowing food to propel down it into the stomach. Um, the stomach is a structure that's connected to our small intestines and the stomach and small intestines both work to absorb nutrients and vital elements that our body needs to function. You then have about 20 to 25 feet of small intestines. And along that tract is where you have additional um, various nutrients being absorbed, things like iron, calcium, etc. The small intestines then turns into the colon, and the colon is about six feet, five to six feet long in adults, and that's where the majority of water and electrolytes are absorbed, is into the colon. And then the colon leads to the rectum, which is kind of the end of the colon, and then stool is excreted out of the anus. So it's a very intricate, intricate system. Um, but that's where kind of, you know, the colon cancer screening, we look right at the, directly at the colon with, with colonoscopies, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into in a few. Right. Right. Man, the colon is that long? Yeah. 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 It's about five to six feet in the average adult. Good you thought it was boy. shorter? That's like uh, a little bit, a little bit. I didn't realize it was like almost a whole person. Uh, Size yeah, laying in you like the length of a colon. And then the small intestines are what four, almost four whole people. And so it's all kind of <laughs> um, twisted onto each other and all in, in your abdominal cavity. Okay. So how do you explain colon cancer to your patients? Sure. So the majority of colon cancer comes from um, an abnormal growth called a polyp. So a polyp is an abnormal piece of tissue that's in the colon that can spread into the center of the colon as well as through the lining of the colon and can metastasize to the remainder of your body and to you know, multiple organs, your brain, your lungs. I've seen it metastasize everywhere once it gets very far along. It's something that's very, very preventable, but I always tell my patients, you know, it's important to, to get screened for colon cancer to to prevent you from you from getting it 
about half of colon cancer deaths in this country can, could have been prevented um, with proper colon cancer screening at the right times. About how prevalent is colon cancer? So about 150,000 individuals in the U.S. a year are diagnosed with colon cancer. You have about a 1 in 25 chance, lifetime risk of getting colon cancer. And so about 150,000 people in the U.S. every year are diagnosed and about 50,000 people die every year. So it's pretty prevalent. It's the third most common cause of colon cancer, uh, of cancer, I'm sorry, amongst men and women behind breast and prostate and females and males respectively and behind lung cancer. And it's the second leading cause of cancer death in this country. And so for it to be mm. such a preventable cancer, it's truly a shame that it's, that, you know, that it's the second leading cause of death when there are so many tests out there and screening things that we can do to ensure that one doesn't have colon cancer or to prevent it from happening if one does have a polyp. When somebody is usually diagnosed, is there a particular stage on average that they're usually found at when they're diagnosed with colon cancer? Mm -hmm. So colon cancer can be anywhere from you know stage zero, which is kind of a little ditzel in the colon, to stage four, which is a metastasis. The majority of colon cancers that we do find are earlier stages, and that's because of things like the advent of colonoscopies a few decades ago. And so when we do a colonoscopy, if we see a stage one colon cancer, it's, it's pretty much a quote unquote easy fix, right? So the, the overwhelming majority, the more than 90% of, um, there's a five-year survival rate of more than 90% for people that are diagnosed with stage one colon cancer. Um, so the majority of ones that I see are early stage, stage one or stage two. I do on occasion see patients that are stage three or stage four, and unfortunately they have um, a lower five-year survival rate. Um, but yes, we do typically see, and I think that there's been, there's been so much um, push and so much emphasis in the media with, you know, people we've lost like Mr. Chadwick Boseman and with um, Will Smith several years ago talking about his journey with um, getting a colonoscopy. There's been a lot of attention recently put on colonoscopies. Um, and so, you know, it really brings light and it brings awareness to the phenomenon of colon cancer. So I think, um, you know, as the years progress, people will be, will be more in tune with getting colonoscopies and getting colon cancer screenings. Right. So kind of tying in what you talked about, mentioned just, just now with Chadwick, did you notice more people coming in to get screened after that or asking you more questions during visit in relationship to him? I did. I did. And what's interesting is that um, without giving too much information away about this one patient, I had a patient probably within two or three weeks of um, Chadwick Boseman passing who was 38 years old, so very young. And he told me that he had been having rectal bleeding off and on for the previous um, few years. And I went on ahead and did a colonoscopy and he had several precancerous polyps. And so had he waited until, you know, the recommended age 45 now, which is the new recommendation for colon cancer screening, you know, one or two of those pops may, could have very well turned into cancer. Um, so, you know, I'll always remember that one patient and just the importance. Anytime a patient has, anytime an adult patient has rectal bleeding, it's in our guidelines to proceed with colonoscopy. And so, you know, I think a lot of times, especially younger folks, 
um, will say, well, you know, I, it's probably just hemorrhoids or, you know, I've only had it once or twice or something to worry about. But my policy is better safe than sorry. And anytime any adult has rectal bleeding, you know, if you come to see me, you're going straight for colonoscopy just to be on the safe side to make sure that there's no colon cancer that's hiding in there, regardless of, of how old you are once you're an adult. Okay. Yeah, I have more people coming in on my end too, having those discussions and want to possibly get screened earlier. They may come in and they're like 35 with no symptoms and they say, I want to get screened for colon cancer. But how do you kind of talk to them about guidelines and what you're kind of basing certain things on? And just even sometimes like insurance won't pay for certain things, but they right. still want to get tested. Like how difficult um, are those conversations for you? Yeah, they are very difficult. And, and to your point, I had um, a similar situation happen to me with multiple patients after that saying they wanted to get screened. Honestly, if you don't have any risk factors, meaning you don't have a first degree relative that had colon cancer, you don't have rectal bleeding, um, other risk factors include things like new onset diarrhea, new onset constipation, abdominal pain that you know you can't figure out why you have it, weight loss is another indication, but without any of those red flag symptoms or any of those alarm signs or symptoms, insurance honestly won't cover until you're 45 years old, won't cover a colonoscopy. I've had friends that were concerned and they paid for um, a Cologuard test out of pocket. Mm-hmm. And so Cologuard is a stool kit, a stool test that you mail in a sample of your stool and, um, in a cup and you mail it off and they look for DNA or for blood from um, colon cancer cells. But it's, it's hard and I definitely understand the worry and the concern. But I just try to reassure my patients, like you're, you know, you're it's highly unlikely that you have colon cancer with no symptoms at all and with no um, family history of colon cancer when you're under 35. But now, if you have symptoms, it's a whole different, a whole different ballgame. You're put in a whole different, uh, separate category. But yeah, with no symptoms and you feel perfectly healthy and perfectly fine, you don't have anemia. Um, and no family history, there's really no indication to do a colonoscopy under under the age of 45. Yeah. So, so you kind of mentioned risk um, groups with increased risk factors. Are there some other groups as far as African-American population? I think the Jewish population mm-hmm. too. Um, any other groups or categories at increased risk? Yeah, so definitely the African-American population. I think that's because of multiple different reasons, um, socioeconomic factors, access to medical insurance, access to facilities where you can get colonoscopies done. Um, and unfortunately, African-Americans are about 40% higher risk of dying from colon cancer than our white counterparts. So it's a, it's a really difficult, difficult situation for, for our population. Um, you know, we all know smoking increases uh, multiple types of cancer, but especially colon cancer, so avoiding smoking. The consumption of red meat, so high consumption of red meat throughout your life. So initially, essentially, the most, the more red meat you eat, um, the more likely you are to increase your risk of having colon cancer and, and colon polyps. I always recommend, you know, I'm not saying that you can never have a hamburger because I enjoy my hamburgers every every now and then on occasion. Um, but you know, not eating red meat every day, not eating red meat every week. Those are things that you can do to really decrease your risk of, of getting colon cancer. A high fiber diet is important as well. So 
lots of fruits and veggies, um, making sure that you're avoiding constipation. So having regular bowel movements and really kind of getting the toxins out of your body. Um, those are all things that you can, that you can do to, to avoid uh, getting colon cancer and increasing your risk. Alcohol use as well has been associated with potential increased risks as well as obesity. So there's multiple uh, things that you can do in your lifestyle to really adjust and, and lower your risk of, of getting colon cancer. Okay. Have they figured out why for that, uh, as a obesity, why it may increase the risk? Does it have something to do with just free radicals changing DNA? I don't know if you know that, but I, maybe it's just some kind yeah. of correlation that they've seen with research. Yeah, so I think it's multifactorial, right? So it might have to do with the whole free radical process. It might have to do with what you're actually eating. So if you are consuming, you know, a lot of red meat, a lot of processed foods, a lot of fatty foods, and aren't consuming the the um, fruits and vegetables that you should be, you're more inclined to be obese, and then that might be it might you know be more of an associated um, risk factor as opposed to causative. So I think there's lots of different theories out there behind why obesity is related to colon cancer. Um, we also know that a sedentary lifestyle is related to developing colon cancer. So increased exercise can help improve uh, your chances of not getting colon cancer as well. So I think there's, it's very a complicated process. And I think over the years, we'll learn even more. Um, but we do know some of the key things at this point that you can avoid and prevent yourself from getting, from getting colon cancer as best you can. All right, Dr. Willard Clay, I've been having abdominal pain for two days. Do I need to rush to the doctor and tell them I need a colonoscopy? Like how yeah. long should I kind of wait out these symptoms or go get checked out before I kind of push to get a colonoscopy or some kind of like colon cancer screening? Yeah, so two days, I'm not sure if you should be in a rush to go get a colonoscopy. Um, so it really, and should you see a doctor? Yes, especially if it's debilitating, like it sounds like it is for you. Um, but it really depends. You know, I get at least one or two messages in my inbox every day with my patients that are having abdominal pain. So, you know, it depends on the severity. Is it a 10 out of 10 or is it a 1 out of 10? You know, is it associated with nausea, with any changes in your bowel movements? Um, it really depends on the, on the nature, on the severity, on the characteristics of the abdominal pain is how we determine what needs to be done. Now, if someone has had, you know, chronic abdominal pain for um, a few weeks or a few months, you know, we do a CAT scan, we don't see anything, then I typically do, do depending on the, on the location of the pain, so whether it's upper or lower, I will do an, um, an endoscopy, which is where I take a camera and look into the esophagus, into the stomach, into the small intestines to make sure there's nothing abnormal there. Um, and or do a colonoscopy as well, just to make sure, because colon cancer can definitely present, present with just abdominal pain. Um, so it really depends on, on the age, on how long they've had it, on if all the other testing is, is unremarkable and unrevealing, then a, I don't think a colonoscopy or an endoscopy for that matter um, is inappropriate. It would be the next step. But if someone just you know came to me and I got consulted in the ER for abdominal pain. I'm not going to send them for a colonoscopy the next day. I'm going to kind of review blood work, review imaging, um, review their personal history, review medication use, 
And then, you know, if I'm not able to find anything and they're continuing to complain of the abdominal pain, then I think colonoscopy is a reasonable option to do. But it's typically not the first thing that I do when someone comes in with, with abdominal pain, although oftentimes it is the first thing that people want. <laughs> it's like, well, there's other things that we can do to, to rule out what's going on. We definitely don't always, you know, jump straight to procedures. Right. Anytime somebody comes to see me for abdominal pain, the first thing I'm doing is getting a pregnancy test. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Make sure oh, yeah. That, <laughs> that there's no baby in there. Sometimes I get it on guys. Like, we're going to get one on you too. But then they look at me yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> that's like, There's no baby in here. I just need to exercise. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right. I need to exercise. No, it's important to rule that out first because the last thing that you want to do with someone that is pregnant is, you know, do a CAT scan or, you know, something else that could potentially harm a fetus, right? So anytime you have. <laughs> Um, females of childbearing age, and that's the fret they haven't already done. Even if they have done it at home, I think it's still important. You know, it's a quick, cheap test to do. And so we always want to make sure, because obviously that takes you down a whole nother, another set of, of issues and a whole nother set of doctors if they are, in <laughs> fact, fret. So, yeah, no, I think yep, that's, here that's goes very some prenatal scary. vitamins. Exactly. And here's your referral to OBGYN. <laughs> See Dr. Dr. Miller, go over there. Exactly. That's like, what's I know going to take care right, of you. Perfect person for you. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about colonoscopies. So yeah. what's all involved with the colonoscopy? How accurate is it? Let's let's talk about it. Yeah. So colonoscopies, I have probably I've done thousands of colonoscopies. I'm sure I've lost count at this point. Um, but I think colonoscopies tend to be scary for people, just the thought of them. And literally almost every patient I have that wakes up from a colonoscopy is always like, wow, that, that wasn't bad. Like, can I, can I do that again? I mean, it's, it's not bad at <laughs> all for those that have not had colonoscopies. The absolute worst part of getting a colonoscopy is the prep. So the day before Oftentimes we'll recommend like a clear liquid or like a low residue diet the day before the colonoscopy. Um, and then you do drink prep. So we typically do a split prep because that's what's been shown to, um, to really clear out the colon. And so if your colonoscopy is on a Monday afternoon, let's say, you'll drink half a gallon um, of, a, of a medicine called Go Lightly. It's a, just a super strong laxative. And the other half Monday, you'll drink half of that Sunday night and the other half Monday morning. Um, or, you know, there's lots of other things on the market. There's things that are mango flavored and fruit punch flavored and, you know, uh, just different things. There's actually a pill out now called, I don't know if I'm allowed to say brand names, but um, there's a you pill out now. That you, okay. <laughs> called Sutab that you can take. And so it's pills instead of drinking a big jug of anything. Um, and so there's so many different ways to prep now. Back in the day, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we, we didn't have that many options. And so now there's lots of different ways to prep and lots of different things that you can take. It really depends on your insurance coverage as to what they'll cover and how much your copay will be. Some of the newer things, the pills, um, some, some of the um, liquid preps that are lesser in quantity are newer and tend to be a little bit pricier depending on your insurance. But either way, you know, there's also, you can also do a Miralax Gatorade prep where you mix a lot of Miralax with a lot of Gatorade and that helps to clean you out that night before and the day of as well. So that's the worst I've part. I've heard about that one. Miralax Gatorade. Yeah. I don't like it Yeah, that's, that's the one they love the most. The patients. 
Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it just tastes like you're drinking a whole bunch of Gatorade. I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, Just from an anecdotal standpoint, patients that I've had that do Gatorade Miralax don't tend to be as clean as someone that does like a Go Lightly or a Plenview or a Sue Prep. Um, But, you know, if that's all they're willing to take, then I say, okay, that's fine. Sometimes I'll even give them like double that. So I'll give them two doses of the Miralax Gatorade Prep. Um, But... The worst part, I mean, you're literally on the toilet the whole night. So I always tell my patients, like, I apologize. I'm sorry. They always come in. They're tired. They're hungry. I'm like, I know. But, you know, the good thing, when you roll into that OR, the worst part of your whole colonoscopy procedure is over. And that was being on the toilet all night, not being able to sleep, not being able to eat, and just feeling overall cranky and and weak. And so that's the worst part of the whole procedure. Um, when you come into the to the OR at my facility, we do propofol. So it's unfortunately and sadly known as the Michael Jackson drug, um, but we give propofol in a, in a monitored uh, setting with an anesthesiologist and an anesthetist present. Propofol is a pretty, and I know Dr. Brantley talked about this a little bit, but um, it's a pretty. Um, it's I, I love it. It's a it's a quick on quick off. Is like a, how I like to describe it. So you give it to the patients within. A minute or two minutes, they're asleep. You stop giving it to them. Within a few minutes, they wake up, um, and the sleep tends to be amazing. For every patient I know that had that, you know, that has propofol, they're like, "Man, that was some good." So they feel very refreshed when they wake up. So I always tell them that's something to look forward to is the sleep. Um, for the actual propofol procedure, so once they're asleep, you know, they don't remember anything at all about the colonoscopy, and so I take a very thin, um, kind of like I liken it to a garden hose. So a thin um, garden hose-like structure apparatus that's about six feet um, in length, and it has a camera on the end of it. And so I insert it into their colon, and they look, th- and I look throughout their entire colon. So I have a big monitor that's on the other side of the patient that I'm looking at throughout the entire time. And I have a technician to my left, and then the um, anesthetist is there, and then there's a nurse. And what I'm doing is I'm looking for polyps. So I take the camera and I go all the way to the beginning of the colon, which is the cecum. And again, that's about five to six feet long. And I'm looking to make sure that there's no polyps, that there's no cancer, that there's nothing abnormal in the colon. Um, If I do see a polyp, then I'll take it out because polyps, as we spoke about, can lead to colon cancer, right? So polyps can range in size from one millimeter to, you know, five centimeters. And then they can be quite large. For the ones that tend to be two centimeters or under, a general GI doctor like myself can just remove it at the time of the colonoscopy. We have different tools that we use to remove polyps. So one is a forceps. So for the smaller polyps, we just literally take a forceps and we snip it out and then we put it in a jar and we send it off to pathology to review. Um, We also have snares. So they're kind of bigger bigger devices that we insert through the uh, colonoscope that can um, cut off the polyp and then we suck it through. And again, we send it off to pathology for them to look at the um, type of polyp that it is. Um, For larger polyps, so polyps that are more than two centimeters, we'll typically send those to advanced GI doctors and they can do different techniques where they um, remove them. Now these techniques are, are, you know, new-ish. Back in the day, a large polyp had to go to surgery, right? So you had to get part of your colon taken out to remove a large polyp. But now technology and and medical advances have allowed us to be able to just do a routine colonoscopy and still remove those larger polyps. Um, So the procedure on average takes about 20 to 25 minutes. It's not bad at all. Recovery takes about 10 or 15 minutes. You're able to 
to eat and drink freely after the colonoscopy. I typically tell my patients, you know, hold off on maybe fried foods or greasy foods the day of the procedure, but anything else is, is fair game to eat and to drink after. Not No alcohol, so no, not non-alcoholic beverages because of the anesthesia, um, but just for that day. So overall, like I said, the most difficult part is actually um, doing the prep. After that, it's easy peasy. All the work is in the gastroenterologist's hands at that at that time, and you go to sleep and wake up like nothing happened. So it's 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 a very very straightforward procedure. Okay, and that was a great explanation of what goes on in a colonoscopy. I know when my dad had his, he said he closed his eyes and. He opened them. He said, when are we going to get started? And they said, we already done. Yeah, it's not bad at all. I encourage all of my patients. Like it's, I try to tell them it's not. And then the thing is too, I think that the first one is always the scariest. Like as for any medical procedure, the first one tends to be the scariest because you don't know what, you know, what you're getting into or what's going to happen. Um, but the large majority of my patients are nervous when they roll in the OR. And then they, when they roll out, they're like, man, that was nothing. Like I could do that again. <laughs> So it's really not that bad at all. And like I said, you don't feel anything when you're when you're under. So yeah, they're scared. Be gentle with me. It's my first yeah. time. I'm scared. Like, you know, you're gonna use lubricant, right? I'm like, yes. That's the thing I forgot to mention. <laughs> we do use a little bit of lubricant around the scope. So at the insertion of the anus. So you really don't. You know, you don't even feel sore afterwards the majority of times because it, the lubricant helps to guide the scope in. Is there any risk involved with the procedure, like accidentally puncturing a hole in someone's colon? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as with any medical procedure, there are a couple of potential risks um, associated with it. The main ones that we worry about are the risk of bleeding, the risk of infection, and the risk of perforation. And so there's a risk of bleeding because you're inserting a foreign object into someone's colon. Um, same thing with infection because you're inserting something. And then perforation can sometimes happen if there's too much air blown into the colon, or if physically the scope um, perforates. Sometimes people have things called diverticuli, which is just small little outpouchings in the colon, but it tends to be areas where the walls of the colon are thinner. And so if you're pushing a scope in, and if you potentially you know, push through a, uh, something like a diverticulum, it could potentially cause a perforation. Perforations happen less than one in a thousand times. Um, and so, you know, I always explain that risk, but I say it's it's so minimal and compared to the lifetime risk of, you know, getting colon cancer, you know, the, the benefits of getting a colonoscopy far outweigh the risks. But yes, there definitely are risks and the main ones include bleeding, infection, and perforation. Um, should a perforation happen, patients just go to the, to the hospital. Um, sometimes they don't require anything. Sometimes they might require, you know, a surgery to help fix it. But again, they're so rare. Um, that they, they, they rarely happen when we're doing colonoscopy. So overall, colonoscopy is a very safe procedure, an effective procedure. About, okay. About how accurate um, is a colonoscopy in detecting colon cancer? Mm -hmm. So studies have shown that it's about 94 to 95% sensitive in picking up colon cancers. Um, sometimes, for example, on the right side of the colon, colon cancers can be easier to miss just because of the um, anatomy. Sometimes colon cancers that are flat can be um, a little um, can be a little easier to miss, and so those tend to be the ones that are missed. 
but overall, you know, 94 to 95% um, efficacy rate for picking up colon cancers. So pretty, pretty accurate um, colon cancer screening tool. So what's your second go-to for colon cancer screening? Is it Cologuard? Is it um, a regular, what we call a fit test when patients send in a stool sample um, via a different tool? Like what's, what's your number two? So my number two is Cologuard. I, I honestly love, love Cologuards. Um, so a Cologuard is um, a kit that you get mailed to your home and you submit a stool sample and it gets mailed off and they analyze that stool sample for any um, signs of, um, of blood or any um, signs of DNA that could be related to colon cancer. Cologuard has about a 92% um, sensitivity when it comes to picking up large polyps and cancer, so not too far off from a colonoscopy. Now, a caveat, though, is that with the Cologuard, it is diagnostic but not therapeutic. So what that means is that the colonoscopy is both diagnostic and therapeutic, right? So we're in the colon, we diagnose a polyp or, um, you know, we see a large polyp, we can remove it. So that's therapeutic at that time. With Cologuard, if your Cologuard comes back positive, meaning that something is abnormal, um, you would then have to proceed to colonoscopy. But for my patients that are 45 years old, no history of inflammatory bowel disease, no family history of colon cancer, no bleeding, um, no diarrhea or constipation, no abdominal pain, no weight loss, I'm perfectly fine with recommending Cologuard because of how accurate it is. And I'm sure we've all seen the, the commercials with the happy Cologuard box shown through the park mm. with people playing basketball or <laughs> holding hands in the park. So it's a very, um, they have a very, very attractive commercials on TV, which is good, which is good. I'm a, I'm a fan of the Cologuard. Um, I prefer colonoscopy, but Cologuard is an excellent screen test for people with zero risk factors who are also willing to proceed with colonoscopy should the Cologuard be positive or be, be abnormal. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan big fan of, of Cologuard. If someone really is against getting, you know, getting colonoscopy, I'm not opposed at all to Cologuard testing. Okay. And make sure you send that stool sample back to the company. Do not bring it to yeah. my office. I've had somebody do that before. <laughs> You've had someone do that? Yeah. They, someone showed up at the front dropping the sample, like in the oh, little God. cardboard thing. It didn't reach back to me me like it was some couple of layers i'm like no i don't want that I'm like no yeah it definitely says so i like that you mentioned the uh aspect of therapeutic versus diagnostic with having um a colonoscopy can you give a little bit of background into the business aspect what may occur from that from a patient standpoint and like insurance may not be covering that one after having a colonoscopy yeah so that's an issue that we tend to run into with certain um insurances you mean like once it becomes a therapeutic procedure the patient getting charged more is that what you mean yeah mm -hmm. so um the majority of insurances insurances cover a hundred percent um screening colonoscopies right so i'm 45 years old i don't have any symptoms at all i just want a colonoscopy to make sure i don't have any polyps or cancer 
The doctor goes in, they don't find any, um, any polyps or any cancer. I'm good for 10 years and I don't have to pay anything, like typically $0 copay. The problem comes in, well not problem, but the issue comes in with payment when a patient gets a colonoscopy and let's say I find a polyp, right? So I find a polyp, I have to remove it, I have to you know, use either forceps or, or the snare to remove it. I send it off to lab and the lab has its individual charges and oftentimes they charge by jar. So if I have you know three different polyps in three different sections of the colon, I'm sending in three different jars. And so oftentimes pathology will, will charge for the jars and then the procedure then becomes therapeutic versus just a screening. Um, and so, and again, it's, it's very insurance dependent, but that is where we run into patients getting bills with, with, some, with some insurances. Um, so that is something that, that patients should be made aware of that, you know, they should check with their insurance company, but they may get billed should I find something during the colonoscopy. And so I know you probably get that that feedback a lot. Like you told me this was covered a hundred percent, and now I have a five hundred dollar bill or a two hundred dollar bill. Yeah, we try to work with insurance companies too, especially if it's difficult for you know for a patient to cover it. Um, I'm a let me see if I mentioned this, but I'm a physician at, at Emory, and um, we have a whole patient financial services um, department that'll you know help work with patients who might have difficulty. Um, paying, but yes, we do see that happen, unfortunately. Yeah, I've seen it happen a couple of times, not too many, but enough for me to have it in the back of my memory um, when talking yeah. to patients about it. Yeah, and it's always a drag when it happens. Um, I wish it didn't. You know, I wish that that they covered it, regardless of what of what was found. But unfortunately, that's the biz- business of medicine and taken care of by people on a much higher pay grade than I am, so. <laughs> so are there any blood tests that are on the market that can screen individuals for colon cancer? And if so, like how accurate are those tests? Yeah, so the one blood marker that we typically use is a, as a and not for screening, but this is more so for surveillance, is a blood marker called a CEA. And once somebody has had colon cancer and they've gotten it treated, sometimes we'll follow that marker. So we'll check their CEA level when they're first diagnosed with colon cancer. And then once it's removed, we'll check that level periodically for the next several years to make sure it doesn't begin to rise again. Um, But there's no good blood uh, test that's on the market right now that is approved for being a screening test for colon cancer. So, you know, as far as screen test goes, goes, we have um, colonoscopy, of course. We have Cologuard. We have a FIT test, which is a stool sample that you would get done annually that checks for abnormal DNA in stool. Um, we have CT colonography, which is like a, a CAT scan that you get. Um, you still have to drink the PrEP. So you have to drink all the PrEP that you would for a colonoscopy. Again, that is just a diagnostic test, but not a therapeutic test. So you would get, it feels like a normal CAT scan to you with the exception of having to drink the PrEP. Um, But it tends to be better at detecting polyps that are larger than 10 millimeters. So should you have, you know, two or three millimeter polyps, oftentimes the CT colonography will not pick those up. So for CT colonography, you typically get those done every five years as opposed to every 10 years like you do for colonoscopies because it doesn't pick up very small polyps. 
Um, and then you have a flexible sigmoidoscopy, which just looks at the left side of the colon, um, part of the left side of the colon to detect any polyps. And those, again, would be done every five years. So the kind of the gold standard across the board is a colonoscopy because it fully evaluates the entire colon and it's both diagnostic and therapeutic. However, for patients that um, even oftentimes if there's patients who have a very tortuous colon um, and I, for some reason, just cannot make it to the beginning, I might send them for a CT colonography. And at least I'll be able to rule out any large lesions that are proximal or that are before the area that I, could, that I wasn't able to reach. Um, so yeah, but yeah, again, the colonoscopy is the only diagnostic and therapeutic one. All right. So you kind of mentioned earlier a few times talking about polyps and you sending them to the lab to see the pathologist, um, what kind of results they get. How long does that usually take for you to get the results from those polyps and how, how much does that change your, um, guidance as far as recommendations on when they need to follow up for another colonoscopy? Sure. So um, the so polyps that are precancerous are called adenomas. Um, and so adenomas are polyps that could turn into cancer several years down the line. So how we determine when a patient comes back for their subsequent colonoscopies depends on um, the size and the number of adenomas. So if someone has three or more adenomas, if someone has between three and, um, and nine adenomas, we typically bring them back in three years. If someone has an adenoma that's greater than one centimeter, we also bring them back in three years. Um, there's new guidelines that show that if someone has one or two smaller adenomas, we can still wait seven to 10 years to bring them back. So it really all depends on um, you know, what the polyp shows, how many there are, and the size. But typically anywhere between three and 10 years is when I'll bring most of my patients back. If someone has 10 or more adenomas, then I bring them back in one year because they're obviously at high risk of, um, of creating, of forming polyps. And if someone has 10 or more adenomas, I typically send them for a genetic counseling as well because they might have some type of syndrome that predisposes them to colon polyps and would in turn predispose them to colon cancer. So speaking of colon cancer, worst case scenario, someone happens to be found having colon cancer. What is the treatment process after being diagnosed? Sure. So you mean like if I find a, a colon cancer in someone, um, what I typically do is I will send them, refer them to both a surgeon as well as a hematologist oncologist. So a colon cancer medicine specialist, as well as a surgeon. I also will get just routine blood work, um, liver numbers checked, kidney function checked, um, hemoglobin, which is the marker of your blood count checked. I'll check a CEA level, which is what we had talked about a little bit earlier. Um, and then I'll also do a pan scan, meaning I'll, CT, I'll order a CT of their chest, of their abdomen and of their pelvis, just to rule out any metastases or spread of the colon cancer to any other organs. After um, that's done, then they'll see a surgeon and, a, um, and an oncologist. Depending on the stage of the surgery, of the, sorry, depending on the stage of the cancer, the surgeon will either take them and get a partial colon resection or they might have to do chemo first. Um, if it's uh, in the rectum, then they could potentially also be eligible for radiation as well. So it's kind of like a three-part um, 
three-doctor team that works with patients that have colon cancer. And they typically get another colonoscopy after, after the colon cancer is gone. They'll get another colonoscopy a year after diagnosis, three years after the diagnosis, five years after the diagnosis, and then every five years after that. So um, they're on a routine schedule, you know, lifetime for, for colon cancer surveillance, just to make sure that it doesn't come back. And then I'll also tell them to make sure that they advise all first-degree relatives that they have colon cancer because first-degree relatives like siblings or children or, you know, in a rare case, their parents, if they're, if they're a younger patient, would have to be screened earlier than usual. Okay. So y'all have gotten some great information talking about colon cancer screening, colon cancer in general, talk about risk factors, treatment options. So Dr. Willard Clay, if you had to leave some lasting words of wisdom for those upcoming on getting screened for colon cancer, or maybe in five years, what, what would you tell them? Um, eat lots of fruits and veggies, eat your, eat your high fiber diet to reduce the risk of getting polyps and cancer. Um, and, and definitely get screened when you turn 45, 45 is a new 50. That's a lot of our slogans on social media now and that we're trying to get out there. A lot of people had stuck in their head that, you know, 50 years old is the year in which you're supposed to get Mm -hmm. your colonoscopy. Um, but it has since been changed to 45. And so for several years, it was just 45 for African-Americans because we were the ones that were getting colon cancer early. Now it's 45 for everybody. So as of the past several months, every single person in this country, um, their insurance, regardless of what race they are, if they are 45, their insurance should cover a a screening colonoscopy. So 45, 45, 45, not 50 anymore. Um, and it's because we're starting to see colon cancer. We don't, for unknown reasons, we're starting to see colon cancer in patients that are a little bit younger. That's why we dropped down the age from 50 to 45. Yes, that diet. Yes, that diet playing a major factor in individuals I think, getting I think colon that's a cancer. Huge part of it. I mean, we're eating so many processed food. The, the good thing is, I feel like over the past several years, there's been this um, trend towards, you know, veganism is is sexy and and eating healthy is kind of, you know, the trendy thing to do. I think about 20 years ago, there were, I mean, I couldn't name one vegan restaurant 20 years ago. Now I can name several, especially here in Atlanta. So that's a good thing, I think. Um, So it'd be interesting to see, you know, over the next couple of generations, long after we're gone, um, if, if, you know, the, the, age kind of increases and the life expectancy increases based on food. But yeah, I think a lot of it, a lot of it is diet. We're uh, a very um, instant gratification type society. And so we like food on the run and fast food. And I mean, it just boils down to you can't get much healthy fast food. Like there aren't many healthy fast food options. And so, um, so yeah, it's important to focus on diet, diet, exercise and get screened at age 45. You eat all that fast food, you're going to die fast. That's the way I, I kind know. of look at it. I know. Mm-hmm. I know. It's so as always, yes. So as always, we always end with Randy's random questions. Are you ready, Dr. Willard Clay? Uh, I did. Uh, I think. Uh, you're ready. <laughs> I can tell by <laughs> your face. to be ready? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We're going to put some clapping music. Okay. Uh, let's get it going. 
There we go. A little <laughs> clapping going on. So you're from Maryland, correct? I am from PG County. Okay. You listen Prince to Go-Go? Go? What's that? I said, do you listen to Go-Go? Oh, not anymore. Honestly, I was never a big fan of it when I was in the D.C. area, to be honest with you. I thought it all sounded the same. So I'm sure my DMV folks are going to kill me for saying that. But since we're being honest, I was never a huge, huge fan of Google. But it was all that I was around when I was growing up uh, in Prince George's County. So, so y'all have, have a big Go-Go music song. scene. No, I'm not about to quiz you on some <laughs> Go-Go Name that tune type thing. <laughs> Nah, nah. I just want to know who is your favorite artist from the DMV area? I would probably, from the DMV area, I would probably say... So one fun fact, random fun fact about me is um, Kenny Lattimore. Do you remember him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he went to my high school. Yeah. He's a little, a little older than me, obviously, but he went to my high school. So I would say... Kenny Lattimore or Raheem Devon? Do you know who, who that is? Raheem the Dream. Yes. A lot of people know don't Raheem know. Where remind me where you're from again originally? I'm from Texas. Okay. A lot of people don't know Raheem Devon. Oh man, that boy can sing. He was over here at um City Winery and I went seen him a few months ago. Yes, he, he, he was at show. City Winery. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think between him and Kenny Lattimore, those are probably my my two favorite um, artists from from the DMV area. I would do a little rendition of Raheem, but I don't own the music rights and I don't want to be sued. And I don't know if this microphone can handle me singing. Distort your voice. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. (laughs) Makes sense. Makes sense. So question number two, do you remember the Magic School Bus? Yes, I used to, we used to always watch it when there's a substitute teacher in our science class. <laughs> All right, so you're on the magic school bus. You're going through the digestive system. Where's mm-hmm. the place that you pray to God that the bus doesn't break down? What part of the digestive system will you oh, be afraid definitely. of the bus breaking down? Definitely in the colon. Definitely, and we would I, we would probably <laughs> die that this. The smell would be so bad we would all <laughs> pass out on the bus. Yeah, I would. I would much rather. I'd probably want to be stuck in the small intestines because the stomach okay. is so acidic and the colon is so uh, smelly. So I think a good mm-hmm. a good place to get stuck at would be the small intestines. But yeah, I would definitely not want to get stuck in the colon at all. Way too dirty down there. And if they drink some go lightly, it'll be straight out. You and the now, unless they're prepping for a colonoscopy. If they were prepping for a colonoscopy yeah. already, then I wouldn't care where I stopped at. But um, I would not want to be stuck in the colon if they if they hadn't recently prepped. Especially if they eat a lot of red meat. <laughs> Definitely wouldn't be want to be stuck in the colon. All right. And the last question. What is a delta? What is a delta? I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. A Delta is me. I'm a proud member. 20 years I've been a Delta. Um, this year, actually, it just came from Mexico last week, week before last. 
um, is my line sister is celebrating our 20 year uh, line anniversary. So Adelta is an amazing, intelligent woman that enjoys being a, being a Delta, enjoys all those around her. <laughs> and I actually just recently joined um, the East Point College Park alumni chapter here in Atlanta. So looking forward to serving with them with them this year. Okay, that's what's up. See, that wasn't too bad. We're going to let you off. Hey, Randy's hey, random question. That kind of threw me off. That was an interesting one. I hadn't I, thought about that show in since middle school. <laughs> that's where I was Randy's random question. Only me and my crazy mindset would think of something like that for you specifically. <laughs> that's an excellent question. All right. So is there any information that you want to share with people as far as if they want to follow up with you, maybe on social media or come see you as a um, physician that you want to give out? Um, yeah. So my office, I'm down um, currently down at Emory at Spivey Station. So I'm down in Jonesboro, Georgia, about 20, 25 minutes south of the city. Um, very easy location to find. We have a, a standalone building, and then we also do the, the surgeries or the colonoscopies right next door. Um, and again, it's um, Dr. Shawnee Willard Clay at Emory at Spivey Station. And um, my Instagram, I don't share as much medical information as I would like to, but I'm going to start doing that more. That's my goal for this year. But my Instagram is gastrodoc1211 on Instagram. Okay. So G-A-S-T-R-O doc1211. All right. So y'all go follow her at gastrodoc. What's the number again? 1211. 1211. Gastrodoc1211. <laughs> I'm going to go follow you right now. But I appreciate you sitting okay. down and sharing some good information uh, for my listeners. No problem. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Colon cancer screening is getting more prevalent in American society. Therefore, it is imperative that you must be screened when it's time for you to get screened. And it's important that you know your family history because this can influence what age you start to have screening for colon cancer. Thank you, Dr. Woodler Clay, for being on and sharing some great information. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and be sure to share it with others. It's very important that people get screened for colon cancer because it is one of the most preventable cancers around. So please share with others so they know the information about how to get screened for colon cancer. Follow me on social media at underscore Dr. Randy. Welcome to all my new followers on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and on TikTok. And please fill out the very short survey in the show description if you haven't done so already. It literally takes less than a minute. I did it myself. It only took me 30 seconds. So it's not that many questions on there. Have a healthy week. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.